Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. on wealth track the stability of the global financial system do the fed and other central banks have enough ammunition left to fight the next recession former imf head john lipsky and veteran global economist nick Sargent respond next on consuelo mac wealth track hello and welcome to this edition of wealth track i'm consuelo mac how stable is the world financial system A decade ago, in the midst of the global financial crisis, it appeared to be on the brink of destruction. Massive and unprecedented monetary stimulus by central banks and fiscal stimulus by governments stabilized financial markets and supported banks and businesses. There was a huge unwinding of debt in the financial, corporate, and household sectors. Fast forward, and the U.S., which was the epicenter of the financial crisis, has led the world out of it. Since 2009, we have experienced the longest bull market in our history and the longest economic expansion. Why, then, is there a sense of unease? The IMF in its recent World Economic Outlook report calls this a delicate year for the global economy, citing escalating trade tensions, particularly between the U.S. and China, a slowdown in China's economy, the unresolved challenge of Brexit, weak industrial production and investment in many developed and emerging market economies, and growing sovereign debt, to name a few. And the IMF points out that a worsening of any of these downside risks would take place at a time when conventional monetary and fiscal space is limited as a policy response. Well, how limited is the policy response and what's the outlook for global growth? Few are better equipped to provide answers than this week's guest. John Lipsky is Distinguished Scholar at the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, as well as Senior Fellow at its Foreign Policy Institute. Prior to that, he served a five-year term as the International Monetary Fund's first Deputy Managing Director, as well as being its Acting Managing Director in 2011. He holds several other leadership positions at prestigious organizations, including vice chair of both the National Bureau of Economic Research and the Center for Global Development. He received a Ph.D. in economics from Stanford University, as did his close friend Nick Sargent, an international economist turned global investment strategist. Sargent is now chief economist at Western and Southern Financial Group and senior investment advisor at its wealth management arm, Fort Washington Investment Advisors, where he had been its chief investment officer until his retirement. Sargent is the author of several books, including Global Shocks, an investment guide for turbulent markets, and most recently, Investing in the Trump Era, how economic policies impact financial markets. I began our discussion by asking them for their assessment of the stability of the global financial system. It seems to me that the global financial system is in much better shape than it was a decade ago before we went into the crisis for a number of structural reasons. Most important is the banking system has much more capital around the world than before. 
backstop mechanisms like the European Stability Mechanism is now in place to provide funding on an emergency basis that didn't exist before, and many of the most egregious sources of leverage have been eliminated or put under much stricter regulation. Derivative markets have been placed under uh, counterparty uh, structures. All of that should work, which is not to say there couldn't be problems, but it wouldn't come from the same sources as before. Nick, um, yeah. what, what's your assessment of the global financial stability? Yeah. Oh, I'd agree 100% uh, with John. and I. Uh, for me, the most important of all the factors cited is just um, the higher capitalization of the financial institutions. I think that was the biggest risk factor then. Um, what I would say, though, Consuelo, is while uh, the financial system looks better, and but I see that troubles me is what if something goes wrong? What do the central banks today do when, in Europe, interest rates are zero to negative? In the United States, you know, interest rates very low by historic standards. So if something were to go wrong, um, they can do quantitative easing, but there's a debate about how effective that is. So to me, uh, that's my biggest worry. What about the central banks and what about the fact that, in fact, that they really haven't withdrawn that much quantitative easing and uh, that interest rates are so low and, you know, negative in Europe, as, as Nick just said, is, is that a problem? Potentially. In other words, could central banks provide a su substantial support to the financial system if there were new troubles? There I think the answer is yes. Could they provide broader support for the economy? That's less clear. They would have to undertake some innovative new measures to get that done. On the fiscal side, the general feeling is that budgets don't have room for, uh, uh, for maneuver. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not necessarily true everywhere. Some European countries have substantial space if they wanted to increase their fiscal spending. For instance, Germany. Germany. For, just mm -hmm. as a for instance. <laughs> right, right. Just by chance. <laughs> but in, in general, the, uh, I'm sure this time around, if there were a new downturn that called for new measures, it would be on the fiscal side. Uh, much more than on the monetary side. So let's talk about the reasons to be more confident. And do you agree, Nick, that global growth is picking up? And, yep. uh, um, I would say um, I was uncertain at the beginning of the year. Uh, but I'd say from March into April, we're starting to see more encouraging developments. And I think I'd like China is where I'm seeing the clearest evidence. Uh, the U.S. feeling a lot better with the jobs report that came out um, being solid. Uh, but there are other weak spots. Europe is, in my view, going nowhere fast. And uh, so we don't see, I don't see yet the sign of a complete global turn. And, and one of the things that, that we've talked about in the past is the fact that there seems to be a divergence in the markets and that the stock market has been very bullish about growth and the bond market with interest rates so low has been signaling more caution. So which market, Nick, should we believe? Well, you know, for a while I was unsure. What I would say right now is um, I think that if, the, if uh, China does continue this upwards um, improvement, that uh, the stock markets probably have more room to run. The, the however, in my view, is that there's still challenges ahead. And I think the big questions in the U.S. is um, is there going to be a profits, a major profits slowdown continuing or not? Now, how much of a concern is that? Well, I think it's, it's happening as we speak. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some of it is 
purely the impact of the corporate tax cuts that were enacted that went into effect last year. Which boosted the Boosted. And, you know, the estimates are last year we had uh, S&P profit growth up over 20%. The ballpark estimates are maybe eight percentage points of that was due to the Mm -hmm. one-off effect of the tax rate cuts. So that goes away. And then you say, well, are we left with um, low uh, double-digit growth? And the answer is no. And so um, what I'm seeing is weak first quarter, maybe second quarter, but does it revive or not? It comes down to, does the global economy revive? And um, I think it will be better, but I think this is a year of single-digit profit growth, not mm-hmm. double-digit. Do you want to add to that, John? Or Well, let's, let's look at the following. Uh, it's hard to believe that investors who have bid up uh, equity prices recently expect to see the continuation of those, that kind of performance into the future. It's if there's, they've reassessed the outlook, decided it's more favorable than they had previously, and priced accordingly. But there's every reason, I think, that uh, we will see much slower profits growth, in the, certainly in the U.S., and that will have an effect on markets. What is interesting is to ask, okay, now let's look at bond markets, mm-hmm. and you have an unprecedented situation in which in Germany and Japan, 10-year ten ten year government bond yields are at zero or below zero. Right. People are paying the government to take their money off their hands for 10 years. We've never seen anything quite like this before, and yields here are low. They're even lower elsewhere. Uh, is that a mistake, or is that saying that there's something going to go wrong with the economy that the stock market doesn't see? Well, not so clear. Number one, central banks have been... In interfering by buying up a lot of long-term right. so isn't debt. that a function of what the central banks have been doing? That must be part of it. Right. Part of it is a recognition that the economies are continuing to move along quite nicely, really, but with no sign of any acceleration of inflation. Mm-hmm. And that would be the principal risk. Right. And and so if, if, if inflation accelerates, then the central banks have to respond, right, because that's their mandate, exactly. by raising interest rates, and that could be a problem for economic exactly. recovery. Right. And there are two other factors that may be long-term. Demographics. As the investment populace gets older, maybe they get more risk-averse, mm-hmm. especially in the wake of the crisis. So they're much more willing to hold on to low-risk assets than they were previously. So you get this combination of good performance on the equity side and very good performance on the debt side, not signaling that there is a contradiction. Right. You two just returned from separate trips to China, and China is a major driver of global growth, and the chi- China has had, I think, 70-plus easing uh, moves in various aspects of their economy yep. over the last year, and it seems to be working. So what's your assessment, Nick, of China, yep. what the outlook is for China? Well, the, the thing that was most evident, because I was at a conference a year ago when the trade war was just beginning, and I came away with uh, the Chinese business community was very, very worried about a possible trade mm-hmm. war at that time. And that was uh, the beginnings of the slowdown in China. Uh, so 10 months later, I returned, and I felt that the mood was a bit more relaxed, and part of that being the anticipation that we're closer uh, to a trade agreement. So I think that um, was the biggest takeaway. I think that the second uh, takeaway is, as you said, there was both uh, in uh, expansionary fiscal policies and um, 
more latitude on lending. Um, and so that may have given the economy a boost. But I think that the longer term issue for China is they've taken on so much debt since the financial crisis that right. is this the sort of thing that gives you uh, a quick injection and things look better for a couple of quarters, but are you dealing with the longer term issues? And I'm in the camp that uh, China's economy on a trend is going to continue to slow mm-hmm. um, because um, I think it's inevitable, but too, that um, the returns on investment are declining uh, because of the nature of where they've been investing mm-hmm. in state-owned enterprises. John, what, what is your assessment of the state of China's economy and its growth? Well, for sure, the latest numbers have been quite upbeat, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sense of the mood when I was there was that folks weren't acting like they were worried or in the midst of a big slowdown. Now, one of the reasons, in addition to the trade, the, the fears of a potential trade uh, fight uh, that was dampening expectations, also the government had responded to this very rapid growth in credit by squeezing the shadow banking system. Right. What they found was, of course, that the shadow banking system was providing credit to the private sector. The state-owned enterprises borrow from the big state banks. So what you were seeing was a slow, a real slowdown in the most productive parts of the economy. Private sector. Mm-hmm. They're not stupid. They recognized this and took some action, and that's why, among other things, the, their stimulus, both in terms of credit and in terms of public spending, have had an impact. But there was another aspect of importance. They had many had concluded that, in spite of earlier pro, uh, promises to move toward a more mar- market-oriented economy that, in fact, they were coming back to more state dominance. Right. In the recent National Development Forum in Beijing, which is a very important annual venue for, expa- for talking to their foreign investors, they were at great pains to say, no, 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 we are going forward with important market-opening uh, measures, including dropping the need for joint venture, ma- majority Chinese ownership, for example, in the financial sector, allowing foreign firms in. Now, are they going to carry through? Are they going to provide not just market ownership, but market access by, uh, by reducing regulatory barriers? This is going to be, a, I think, a very important determinant of the longer-term mm-hmm. uh, outlook for the Chinese economy that we all know is going to have to deal with a slowing growth in the labor force, an actual eventual decline in the labor force because of their demographics, demographics. Mm-hmm. that will tend to slow growth in any case, if not this growth per capita. So hopeful signs, but let's see if uh, there's carry through. There's a, an area of the world that has, has not been in the headlines that much that you think is extremely critical, and that is Latin America. Why are you so concerned about Latin America? Why should we be paying more attention to it? Well, let's say, why should we pay attention? Because there are risks, but there are real opportunities. The risks are obvious. Venezuela is a disaster on a historic scale, produced more refugees than Syria. It's, it's unimaginable that this has continued to, to fester, and there won't be an easy cure. The disaster is so deep, and it will affect their neighbors. Just at a time when the new government in Brazil, for all its political oddities, is espousing a really seriously reformist pro-market 
open economy model mm -hmm. for Brazil. And in Argentina, there's a pro-market, pro open economy government trying to introduce important reforms in the two, two of the big, well, Brazil by far the biggest economy right. in the region. The exact opposite of what has, had happened in Venezuela, where the government took over everything and has destroyed the economy. Exactly. Right. So we quietly, on the West Coast, Peru, Chile, Colombia, okay. things are going well and have been going well. If you add Brazil and Argentina, if they were to succeed, it's an opportunity that we shouldn't ignore. We should be talking again about a free, free trade agreement for the Americas. This is right in our backyard. NAFTA, in my mind, has been a success. We should look to a free trade agreement for the Americas. We've, it takes good luck in Argentina and Brazil and a solution in Venezuela. But we shouldn't overlook it. Let me ask you about the markets, because uh, we are in the U.S. We are last year entered the longest bull market in history. Uh, we are approaching the longest economic recovery in U.S. history as well. What do you each think about the sustainability of the U.S. recovery and also about the bull market? John, why not start with you? Okay. Right now, the expansion appears to be sustainable. There are two very good signs. One, if we look at the jobless claims number, they are at his, are the lowest since the 60s, and they haven't been bouncing around. They've been quite steady, saying, sig signifying a very solid labor market, which indicates it should boost incomes and consumer confidence. The second related fact is, if you remember in the recession, the so-called participation rate. Yes was falling and people, those folks who were telling you about secular stagnation were telling you that that participation rate would never recover. Well, it's recovering. It was suggesting that there may be more room to run in the labor sector despite the very low unemployment rate. So both of those are good signs for a still solid consumer outlook. And if that's the case, then uh, it's hard to get too downbeat about the U.S. outlook. All right. Market. Bull market, longevity, well, concerns. I, yeah, I, I would say that um, the bull market goes with the U.S. and the global right. economy. And, um, you know, again, what I look for on the uh, economy front is, do I see major signs of imbalances? And the answer right now is I don't. You don't. So the second issue, though, is that we learn from uh, the global financial crisis is your first question on, yeah, but is the financial system, are there cracks in it? And again, I agree that um, it's in somewhat better shape. So, you know, then that leads the question, well, does this mean we're just on autopilot? And um, the answer, I think, is I think the market may be, you know, starting to think about that. In fact, I've been reading some things. But I would say there's always something to worry about. And I'm convinced it may not be anything that we're talking about right now. So my bottom line is, um, you know, I think that there's more legs to this. But at the same time, I would just caution people, it's been one of the strongest starts to any year. Mm -hmm. um, that's not going to continue. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, if it did, that's when I would worry. Um, but we, we came off the heels of one of the worst sell-offs of any quarter. So it was extraordinary volatility. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, there's uh, more room to go, but at a more gradual pace. Investment strategy, Nick. 
Yep. What are you uh, recommending? What would you recommend for individual investors? I think that the reality for most investors who don't want to take a lot of risk is they just want to earn some nice um, income. Now, the biggest challenge, though, that the investor runs into is if they want yield, yield, yield in the stock mm -hmm. market. Because where do you, where are they? Well, utilities, real estate, maybe financials. So the problem that we see is, is that those funds may not be properly diversified. So um, our idea is to be looking out for vehicles that can give you dividend yields, let's say ballpark, three and a half, four percent. That meets my objective. But I'm more properly diversified um, so that if the market were to sell off, um, I'm not taking as much risk as more concentrated funds. So as a core approach, so that would be the one investment yes. for a long-term diversified portfolio yeah. would be then to a diversified portfolio of income-yielding stocks? Yes, uh, income-yielding stocks. And we might even have some bonds in that as well. Uh, to just give us proper balance. One investment for long-term diversified portfolio, John, you are not an investment advisor, but last year when you were on at this time, you recommended dollar-denominated assets. And in fact, in 2018, the dollar was up. Most markets were down, including the U.S. market, but it was down less than just about anything else, and U.S. Treasuries did very well. Yes. Do you want to pick a region or a country or that you think? Yes, I'll well? be happy to give it a shot, but first, it, I think it's worth keeping in mind, both here and abroad, if you say, what, is, what would be the big risk? We could talk about policy risks, the trade war, this, that, that. But clearly, given the level of indebtedness, inflation is key. If inflation were to flare up against all expectations, we'd be in a very different spot. But it, right now, we're confident that that's not the case. But if we were wrong, that would be to be really wrong. So corporate debt and government debt levels are extremely high in this country and in other countries exactly. around the world as well. But debt service burdens are very low because rates are so low. So that's why even though the stock of debt is high, the cost of carrying that debt is not. Now, for uh, where to look for over the coming year? Well, you probably want to look for the, at the area that has been the most castigated, and I would say that's Europe. Brexit political problems, a tragedy with the burning of Notre Dame, Italy, Spain. Everywhere you look, there are political problems, economic underperformance, and the markets have looked at Europe with uh, askance. And uh, it's easy to see policy improvements, but also that a lot of the underlying economic weakness may have been temporary partly in Germany and elsewhere with the, auto, the problems in the auto sector that are probably temporary. Uh, China, which is uh, this earlier slowdown in China now going away. Uh, if, if the Europeans can come across with some reasonable political developments and we can solve Brexit in a satisfying way, then I think that's where there could be a substantial change in market attitudes. Wouldn't want to over-exaggerate. But right now, the markets look on Europe and, and say, oh, every kind of problem you can imagine, that could change. All right. So we're going to leave it there. John Lipsky, thank you so much for joining us thank with you. your thank good you. friend and former colleague, Nick Sargent. Please. We love having you both on. It's great. Thank it's you. Always a thank pleasure. You. Thank you.
At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is consider putting a small amount of your emerging markets allocation into an established Latin American fund. As John Lipsky told us, there are two economic extremes represented in our southern hemisphere. The unmitigated and almost unprecedented failure of Venezuela's economy caused by the terrible dictatorial socialist policies of Hugo Chavez and his successor. That is a situation only for experienced distress investors. But luckily, as Lipsky mentioned, there are several countries with healthy open market economies. Chile, with its now long-standing free market economy built by Chilean economists who were students of Milton Friedman's at the University of Chicago. Colombia, which has adopted similar free market reforms, and Peru. In the possible turnaround category is Brazil, by far the largest and wealthiest of the countries, whose new government is attempting serious pension reforms to get itself out from under a crippling financial burden. Considering that Brazil dominates Latin American indexes with a 60% weighting and Mexico with around 25%, we decided to look at actively managed funds that don't hug the benchmark. One that comes up on several searches is the T. Rowe Price Latin American Fund, which is a Morningstar bronze medalist, the only medalist in the Latin American stock fund category, so designated because of its experienced team and sound and distinctive growth discipline. We and our guests are always on the lookout for underrepresented, unpopular, and thus frequently undervalued areas to diversify into. These volatile Latin American markets check all three boxes. Well, next week, how to save yourself from disastrous mistakes in retirement. Award-winning financial planner Mark Curtazzo has the solvency-saving advice. To see this program again and other WealthTrack interviews, please go to our website, WealthTrack.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful Mother's Day weekend, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.